This is a Sunday message from New Community Church in London. To discover more about New Community, visit newcom.church. I don't know if there is any overthinkers in the house. Anyone here describe themselves as an overthinker? Yeah, a few, a few honest people. This has been a bad 18 months for overthinkers, hasn't it? It's been rough for overthinkers. We have had way too much time to think. And uh, I don't know if you can remember back now, it feels like a while ago, but to the like deep lockdown days where literally everything is shut and you know, if you went out for a five minute walk, people give you little evils through the curtains, like back to those days. We had way too much time to think the, the kind of the four walls around us, the, the, the job we were in, the house we were in, thinking, do I really want to keep doing this? Do I really want to keep living in this house or with these people, with this person? Do I want to keep doing this job with that boss who keeps doing that thing? For other people, you're thinking, hey, how do, I, how do I make my life more fun? How do I make it more interesting? That's why a lot of people got pets for the first time in lockdown. Anyone here get a dog for the first time in lockdown? Any dog? Yeah, a lot of people. Wow, yeah, exactly. A lot of people getting dogs. What about tattoos? Come on, anyone, break, anyone get a lockdown tattoo? A few kids at the back, all right, <laughs> probably need to talk to you. David Blower, he got, I saw it, that, the, low, the lower back tattoo, it looks great on you, Dave. But uh, yeah, a few tattoos out there. But we've had a lot of time to think, haven't we? A lot of time to think. But what is the most important thing that we can think about? What's the one thing that impacts us the most? The author, the philosopher, the theologian A.W. Tozer says this. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Now, why is he making that claim? Why why would he say that? Well, because what you think about God, your creator, the, the one who made you, who made this world, affects every part of your life affects your identity, affects what you think about what life is about, what you're living for, how you treat and handle money, how you treat and handle people, how you treat and handle the planet. All these different things are affected by the way you and I view God. So what is God like? If how we view him affects us so much, then well, what is he actually like? Well, thankfully, he didn't just leave it up to our imaginations. See, God came to earth as a man. In Jesus. 2,000 years ago, God to earth as a man in Jesus, showing us an exact image of what God is like. How would he think about, how would he treat, how would he react to human beings like you and I? Well, if you're interested in finding out more, then the best thing you can do is actually to read the gospel stories of Jesus. The historical accounts of Jesus of Nazareth, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You can find it in a Bible. If you haven't got one and you'd like a Bible, we can give you one as a church or you can find one online. And the gospel accounts share so many stories that paint a picture of what Jesus was really like. Not what Christians are like, not what church is like. Maybe you've had all sorts of good or bad experiences of Christians or church. No, but what God is like. So what was he like? Well, there's so many stories that could be shared of what Jesus is like. But one that I particularly love that I think really illustrates what Jesus is like and how he thinks about you and I was in Luke chapter 7. And the setting of this story is Jesus has gone for a meal with a Pharisee. Or a religious leader, the kind of, you know, the religious and, and they're also kind of political leaders in that time. 
And he's there and these, these, uh, this Pharisee is trying to suss him out a little bit. He's kind of invited Jesus in, but it's not just because he wants to show off his, you know, his hospitality or his cuisine, but he's got a few questions and maybe a few critiques of Jesus. And so what happens? Well, they're eating together. And then all of a sudden, there's a gate crasher who appears on the scene. A woman who comes in and does something very radical and very controversial. Let's read it together. If you've got a Bible, it's Luke chapter 7, verse 36 to 38. If not, the words will be up on the screen. Luke chapter 7, 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. Now, we don't know the exact thing that got her reputation as a sinner, but it's most likely that she could have been a prostitute. A woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with ointment. Not your average dinner party. (laughs) Not the norm. And how is Jesus going to respond? This sinful woman, this woman with bad repute, comes into the house. He's with respectable company. How is Jesus going to respond? What is God like? What does Jesus do in response? Does he say, look, I don't know if you've seen what's happening here, but this isn't really appropriate for this setting. Or maybe, you know, does he respond saying, I'm trying to start this kind of global religion and my PR right now is already a little bit shaky and I can't really be associated with someone like yourself. This is all a bit weird. If news of this gets out, this is not good for my reputation. Or maybe he condemns her and says, Don't you think that I have an idea about who you are? Don't you think that I know the kind of things you've had to do to buy that ointment that you wiped my feet with? And me as a holy religious man, you think you can come in here and do that? Is that what Jesus, is that what God is like? Well, what happens? We read in verse 39. See, the Pharisee has that response. It says, now when the Pharisee who invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. See, that's the the, the response we we expect from, you know, a serious religious leader. And what does Jesus say in response? Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other... 50. When they could not pay, he cancelled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he cancelled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet 
with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is a picture of what God is like. This is a picture of what Jesus is like. Is he the one who comes with this heavy religious spirit to condemn? No. He is the one who invites in the broken, the hurting, the outcasts. Those whose society said, you are not good enough. Jesus said, you are welcome with me. It's why when you read the stories of Jesus, he always seems to get on a lot better with the people who realize they need help. It's the people who think they're too good for help that usually struggle with Jesus. It's why he hangs out with people like lepers, social outcasts who wouldn't be touched by society. Jesus draws near. It's why Jesus earned himself a reputation as a friend of tax collectors and sinners. The worst of the worst. Now, how, how would you feel about that? If your reputation amongst your friends and your colleagues was, oh yeah, they, they hang out with the worst people in society that everyone rejects. They seem to, to hang out with them a little bit too much. And Jesus doesn't reject that reputation. He's happy to embrace it. Because he didn't come for those who thought that they were well. He came for those who knew that they were sick. Because often the people who know they're broken can see the heart of Jesus and respond in love back. See, God didn't come to condemn. No, we read in John 3.17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. I don't know if your picture of, of God, maybe from your upbringing or things you've seen online or whatever, is that God is this judgmental God who wants to come and tell you just how terrible you are. No, Jesus came to provide a way of life, of freedom, of forgiveness. He loves you. And his ultimate expression of love was where? On the cross. See, on the cross, Jesus, in his great love for us, took all the sin, all the wrong things that you and I have ever done, and took it on his shoulders. He didn't turn a blind eye to it. This isn't the kind of progressive Jesus who says, hey, you know what? You live your truth. It doesn't matter what you do. If you think it's fine, it's fine. You do you. you, you live your story, you live your truth. It's okay whatever you do. No, no, no. He said, no, there is right and wrong. There is sin. There is things that you and I do that need to be met with justice. The reason he could say to the, the woman at his feet, you know, you are forgiven, go no more, isn't because he said, hey, go and do whatever you want. It's fine. No, because her sin had been covered by his blood. Jesus isn't the one who says it doesn't matter. He said, no, it matters greatly. Every thought, everything in your browser history, you've hit the delete button on. Every time you've gossiped about that colleague, every time you've held back forgiveness from that person, even though God has forgiven you so much, you still refuse to forgive them. Every time you've been self-centered and selfish, all these deeds that you and I and that woman have ever done 
were put on him in that moment. And on that cross, justice was not put on us, but on him. And in the great exchange, your and I's, yours and mine, uh, sinful deeds that we've ever committed was paid for once and for all. See, on that cross, Jesus said, it is finished. That means the story is over. That means that right now, you don't have to earn that forgiveness. Maybe you came into church today thinking, hey, well, to, to, to be accepted, to be a follower of Jesus, I just feel like there's this set of rules that I have to match up to. I don't know if I could ever stop swearing. I don't know if I could ever stop doing that thing. I don't know if I could ever stop X, Y, Z. It's not about obeying a set of rules. It's about coming into relationship with Jesus, the one who has forgiven every sin and given us freedom. And as Emily brought in the worship, for freedom, Christ has set us free. We can be free today, not because, you know, of our own doing, because we've had a good week, because we're a good person, but because of what Jesus has done. And this changes every aspect of our life. You no longer have to come into church or even avoid church because you're thinking, I haven't been a good Christian this week. I haven't read my Bible this week. I did that thing this week that I just... I don't feel like I could be in church for a few more weeks until I've kind of made up for it. No, you can run into the arms of God. It means that you're no longer defined by your mistakes, by your sin. We don't have to live in shame. I don't know about you, but I've struggled with this in my life. Moments from my past that literally I would beat myself up. John, how did you do that? You idiot. How could you treat someone like that? And it hangs over you, the shame, the guilt. We're now free of that. We've been forgiven. We're not defined by our sin. Jesus takes that from us and gives us righteousness. He's not there wagging his finger saying, hey, you know what? I'll let you come to church, but don't you ever forget that thing you did. Now, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. That's the promise over you and me today. Thank you, God. And grace leads to grace. It means as well as not having to impress God, you don't have to impress others. See, this isn't a church where you come, you have to kind of come along and put on your church clothes, both physically and metaphorically, and kind of show your your best uh, self and change the radio stations you pull up from, from your kind of, I don't know, Capital Extra to like Gospel FM or whatever it is, just in case they hear that, you know, that, that naughty music or anything like that. No, no, this is a place where we don't live two lives, where we come in grace. It's where we don't blacklist people. Oh, you know, well, a few years ago when we gave them that opportunity, they messed it up, so there's no chance for them again. No, grace leads to grace. We've been forgiven, and so we forgive. That is who we are. There's freedom. And this is at the heart of New Community Church. This is our heritage. This is our history. This is our lineage. This is our family way. This is how we are to live as New Community Church. And if you look at it, if you trace back the, the story of it, I mean, this is a million miles an hour history here. But you could trace it back, maybe the best place to start is with Martin Luther. Not Martin Luther King, slightly different guy. Martin Luther in the 16th century. We've got a little photo of him here. 
There he is, handsome chap that he is. I'm not sure if it's the lighting or he had a bad fake tan the day before, but uh, there he is, good old Martin, Lu Martin Luther. And Martin Luther came in a, a setting where so much of it, what it meant to be a Christian, was it about obeying rules. You needed to be a good person. You couldn't be confident that God liked you. You need to do this, do that, do that, do that, to make sure that you've got your ticket out of hell and place in heaven. And Luther came along and said, that is absolute nonsense. You don't have to earn your way to heaven. Jesus has paid the price. And Luther said things like this. The sin underneath all our sins is to trust the light of the serpent, of the devil, that we cannot trust the love and grace of Christ and must take matters into our own hands. He's saying we have this belief that we kind of know that we've, we've read in the Bible about grace, but we probably need to have a backup plan, that we do enough good deeds that hopefully, you know, if God's grace isn't sufficient, that on the pearly gates, Peter's there and he's like, yeah, you know, I'll let you in because your good deeds outweigh your bad. No, his grace is enough. And that is what Luther taught hundreds of years ago. But as often is the case, the journey starts towards something and then we end up in a different sort of place. In, uh, in the 60s, going back to when some of you were just a wee kid, in the 60s there was a rediscovery of grace. People like Terry Virgo, who some of you will have never heard of and some of you will be like, oh, I love Terry, he's great. People like Terry Virgo discovered this whole idea that, no, we need to come back to God's lavish grace. And I think we've got a picture of Terry. There he is. Good old Terry. Now, this is completely unrelated, but is it just me or does Terry Virgo look just like the guy from Up? Do you know what I mean? I'm talking about this isn't related, but come on. Come on. That is, that's uncanny. I've never seen the two of them in the same room at the same time, so... Anyway, a bit of a distraction, but it had to be said. It had to be said. But people like Terry and Simler are saying, look, what's happened is we, we, we know this theology, this theory of grace, but we've just piled so much stuff on top of it. Like church has got so serious. I, even for my mum, like I know people growing up in church context where it's like, if you're a good Christian, you don't drink, you don't dance, you don't play cards, because obviously, you know, Uno is from the devil. Um, and it's like all these things that, like, yeah, we know the grace of God, but it's like, man, if that's what it means to be a Christian, like, I, I'm not sure that's particularly joyful in life to the full. And that's the seed, that's the soil in which the seeds of this church was planted. New Community Church, or when it started Barnabas, community church. That was the foundation we were based on. People like Dave Holden and others in that time and people still in this church who said, no, we want to live in freedom. We want to live for Jesus, but not with all these extra things piled on top. And we, I think we've got some pictures of the early days. There you go, of, of New Community Church or Barnabas as it was back then. I don't know if anyone can recognize the guy on your left up there. That's Dave Holden back in the day with his curtains and uh, <laughs> trendy beard and uh, again a bit of a side sidetrack but I thought it'd be in, in the middle it looks like there was a Barnabas boy band or something like that I like the little like lean back on the stairs he got going on the steps you walked in today now you know what went on I've actually got a copy here if anyone's interested to read my favorite thing about this is not only does it have a crossword on the back it has a uh, recipe for the month in it as well so it's uh 
if you think things are good now, it used to be a lot better back then. <laughs> but that's the soil, that's the foundation that this church was based upon. That's why we're doing this series. The reason we're doing this series isn't, oh, we, we want to go back to the golden old days. You know, right at the beginning when we used to kind of have trendy haircuts and, you know, certain music style or anything like that. No, we're wanting to go back to it because it's easy to forget where you came from. It's easy to forget where you came from. So you can start in one place and start really well and end up in another. And this is nothing new. In fact, it goes back right to the beginning of church history. If you read the book of Galatians, it's a great example of a church that started in grace and ended up in works. So Paul, the author, says to the church in Galatians in chapter 5, he says, You have fallen away from grace. You started there and you, you fell away. He says, You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? I mean, these are strong words. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So you can forget where you came from. Even if you were here in the early days of New Community Church, back in Barnabas days, maybe you're in one of these magazines, we can forget where we came from. You can start in grace and fall away. And that's exactly why we're doing the Redig the Well series. We're coming back to the wells that were once dug. And it's important for us individually, but it's also important for us corporately as a church. Because if the most important thing that we think about individually is about God, then the things we believe as a church about God are the most important things about us. And it's why this whole thing of intergenerational is so important. To be honest with you, I, it's not something that I've really thought about much in my life until recent weeks. It's something that James and others have been bringing up time and time again in, in, in this Redig the World series. It's this whole notion of this. One generation fights, the second assumes, and the third loses it. We need to pass on these truths from one generation to the next. We can't just assume that because the church was founded in a certain way, that in this day and in the days to come, we'll keep living it. We cannot assume it. We have to fight for it. And I know for many of you here, actually, coming to this meeting, I think one of the, the, the words that God would have for you is that he wants you to be someone who passes on the baton of grace to the next generation. There's some of you here who, you know, this is maybe the norm for you. It's the air you breathe. But for many people coming up, that isn't the case. And what God is calling you to in this next season of life is to invest in grace in the next generation. Perhaps for you that looks like being invested in this afternoon meeting. Perhaps for you it means inviting a younger person for coffee. Getting involved with people who aren't in the same generation to share what it means to live a life of grace. Now, a key thing to say as we look to redig the wells of grace in this new generation is this it's not about the well, it's about the water. It's not about the well, it's about the water. 
See, what, what we're trying to do is not kind of recreate the good old days. We're not trying to kind of recreate a church. Oh, man, the formula is this. I remember when we discovered grace, we, uh, we used to have banners. That was a real time of grace and freedom. Let's bring the flags back. Or I remember we used to kind of sing those songs. Oh, if we just sang Shine, Jesus, Shine one last time, revival would break out. They would know his grace. We're not trying to just redo what was done before. We're not trying to make the well look exactly like it looked in the 70s or 80s. No, because it's not about the well. It's about the water. A well is pointless if there's no water. It can look amazing. It can be the most beautiful well you've ever seen. But if it doesn't get out of the water, then there's no point to it. And so as a church in this new generation, we need to look at what it means to redig the well in a new time, in a new season. Because the landscape is different now. This isn't the 80s. This isn't the 90s. A lot has changed. The culture is different. And it might not be, I remember chatting to a few people about some of the early battles of grace and, uh, and chatting to people about, you know, there used to be a lot of debates about what you wore or if piercings were okay or not and all these kind of things. We're not debating those things now. But there are new things that we have to think through that we're going to have to navigate. We're not in a time where it's the norm in our nation to be a Christian or maybe to have been brought up in church. That's not the norm anymore. But the truth is, there is a new cultural religion. There is a new religious spirit in this society. One that actually says, you don't need grace. Because there is no sin. If you think it's okay, that's fine. It's okay. You decide what's right and wrong. Oh, but P.S., if, if you don't believe within this particular bracket, then things will go very badly for you. Don't expect to keep that job. Or to keep that platform. Oh, and, and, and by the way, you need to make sure we've, we've got rid of that symbol of that religion. And now we've replaced it with this one. Make sure you display it. Make sure you live within this bracket and then things are good. See, we haven't abandoned religion in our country. We've just replaced one religion with another. And it has its own set of very rigid belief systems and symbols. And so there's going to be some new fights, especially for younger people having to navigate all of these new things as culture changes at a million miles an hour. And so we need to do this as family. So what do we do now? What are the next steps? What are the 10 points to live in in grace? How do we achieve this? How are we going to win grace for ourselves? Well, we could go down the line of looking at, okay, what does a grace-filled life look like? And that would be, you know, valid enough because the Bible is very clear that when you understand grace, it leads to a change of life. You can't understand the grace of God and not have a huge impact on the way you live. But the problem is when you start at the, the behavior side of things rather than the heart behind it, you're never truly going to have any lasting change. I've been in, in loads of conversations with people recently. I'm just increasingly convinced. Maybe you're like, well, oh, I just, I know that I, I, really, I really should give. I really should. I, I know every time I hear that newcom.church forward slash give, I'm like, I'm going to set up a stand in order this week. I'm going to do it. But then I always, 
just, ah, I can't do it. And I, oh, I know I should serve. I really should. I really should. I know I should read my Bible. And oh, I'm just really not doing it. And oh, I just really should. I really should. And unless you know the heart of God, there's never going to be lasting change in your life. Because what you're going to do is you're going to strive and strive and you'll never reach the standards you hope to achieve. I've been there. I've been there. I've spent years of my life guilty about how I don't read the Bible enough. How, you know, I, I read about Terry Virgo who had two-hour quiet times every morning. I'm like, man, I'm such a terrible Christian. I really should, like, at least half an hour praying in tongues and then half an hour reading the Bible in Greek and then half an hour praying for the nations. And then, you know, that's if I'm going to be a real leader, that's what I need to do. Ah, I've lived there. It's exhausting. But what does Jesus say? Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Take my yoke and put it on you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, for many of us, we think that being a Christian means I have to be good enough. You might not say that's your theology because you've been around long enough to know what you're not meant to say. But you just feel like a terrible Christian all the time. God's message to you this morning isn't, you need to clean up your act. The word of God is, come to me. Come to me. Know my heart. Know my love for you. Know my grace for you. So the application for today, bask in the grace of God. Enjoy his grace. Spend time this week just thanking him for his grace. Maybe just listening to some worship songs about grace talking with your community about how good it is to know the grace of God. Terry Virgo says this, Remember, God has accepted us. The gospel of grace is a message of breathtaking freedom. It must be embraced with faith and thanksgiving. You are thoroughly accepted just as you are. Jesus Christ is your righteousness, and he is never going to change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. When you wake tomorrow, he, is still, he will still be your righteousness before you have done anything to enjoy God's favor. You have to earn nothing. You have to earn nothing. Your spirit needs to bask in the brilliant, brilliant sunlight of this reality. You need to know it inwardly and celebrate it on a daily basis. Church, we need to redig the well of grace. And that's not something to strive at and to work really hard at. It's something to enjoy, to come back to the freedom of grace. And so just as we come to an end, I'd love for us to, to pray together. And I think there's a few different things that Jesus is wanting to, to do today as we redig this well of grace. I think for, for some, it's the whole thing of intergenerational. For some of you, God is wanting to give you a fresh vision for passing on this message of grace to the next generation. Maybe it's today as you try and think about future weeks, about what you're going to do in terms of what meeting am I going to go to? Where am I going to serve? Who am I going to invest in? God is wanting to say, it's time to pass on the baton of grace. I think for, for others, um, God is, you've been living 
with that shadow of shame over your head, with that cloud of shame. Like I say, I've been there. You just beat yourself up. You can't get free of, of things from your past, thing in, things in your life. And God is wanting to bring freedom today and his grace. For others, it's accepting grace for the first time. For you, you've never in your own life said, I, I want to know your heart, God. I want to live for you, Jesus. And today, you can come to his grace. The best decision you can ever make is to say, Jesus, I want to know your heart and live for you. And for others, it's just drink afresh. Drink afresh of the well of grace. Know his freedom. Know his goodness. Know his grace. So can I just invite you to, to stand and we're going to pray together. Hmm. Yeah. Just as um, I was preparing for this talk, I felt like God saying that there's people here who need to, to hear his message over you that God likes you. You know that he loves you, but he likes you. When you come to him and ask him for forgiveness, I feel like there's people here who you know that God forgives you, but you feel like he, when you come to him and ask for it, it's kind of like, he's there like, really, again? <laughs> Seriously? No, he loves when you come near to him, when you draw near. He likes you. God, I, I thank you that you are so full of love, so full of grace. What a scandal it is that we can stand here today completely free, not because we're the good ones who've never sinned, but because we know your grace. You're the one who's forgiven us. You're the one who's freed us. And we thank you that in your grace you reached out to us. And that when we accept your grace, we can know that freedom. I pray for anyone here who's living under that cloud of shame, Lord. Would they know your freedom? Would they know that you're not angry with them, that they can receive your forgiveness and grace? Thank you, Lord, that in a culture that loves to cancel and write people off, that's not your way. And that's not the way of this family. Lord, I ask that it would never be said of this church that we forgot the way of grace. Help us to redig this well. Help us not to fall back into the ways of legalism or dead religion. And God, we thank you that this, great, this, this grace was purchased for us at such a valuable price. Jesus, we thank you for your death that makes this all possible. The scandal of it all, the scandal of grace. We thank you, Jesus, and we tell you we love you. We just want to live for you, not because it's this burden, but we desire, Lord, to give you everything. We long to live for you, to worship you. Thank you, Lord.